fait j'ai voulu te, te téléphoner Pour te, te demander Allo quelque chose quoi All right, and thank you to Zap Mama for Allo, Allo, and Allo to all of you listening out there, whether on the radio or streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. This is Arts Week, and I'm Jeanette de Beauvoir. At the Provincetown Theatre, Heidi Schreck's Obie Award-winning play, What the Constitution Means to Me, is making its Cape Cod premiere. Drawn from the playwright's own lifelong passion for the majesty and mystery of the U.S. Constitution, the play follows the story of how its young author used her intellectual embrace of our country's mightiest living document to win college scholarships at constitutional debate contests. In the process, Shrek unpacks an unexpected personalist political journey that's empowering, haunting, funny, and full of hope. And you can find out more, get times and tickets at provincetowntheater.org. That's theater with an E-R dot org. And if it's true that artists craft their works as reflections of their personalities, then it's undeniable that Mozart pioneered that concept. Join the Cape Symphony Orchestra for an evening of enchanting melodies and artistic brilliance as it pays homage to the extraordinary talent and genius of Mozart. This unique concert, under the guidance of concertmaster J. Cosmos Lee, will offer a splendid array of musical tastings from Mozart's most renowned creations, ranging from the enchanting Magic Flute to the majestic Symphony in Prague. And you can find out more about that, get times and tickets at capesymphony.org. And there's music and more at the pop-up practices in Parish Park, and that's in Orleans at the Old Firehouse. On November 11th, it's John Schumann performing an afternoon with moi, a humorous one-man presentation about his life here on Cape Cod. And the event is free. This is your last chance to head out to Brewster to see Cape Rep's one-woman show, Trish LaRose, Come On to My House. Inspired by the brilliance of legendary one-woman shows from the likes of Bette Midler and Cheetah Rivera, Trish LaRose weaves story and song into a show filled with heart, sass, and laughs. Backed by a stellar six-piece band, Trish invites you on a candid, eclectic journey about life as a New Yorker, becoming a mother, and discovering her inherent connection to Puerto Rico goes deeper than she could have imagined. Times and tickets for the show are, as always, at caperep.org. There's a special event coming up on Saturday, November 18th at the Wellfleet Preservation Hall. Holistic Healing, Indigenous Voices, Panel, Musical Presentation, and Potluck. Join Alfre Woodard in a free event welcoming a panel discussion exploring health and wellness from an indigenous perspective. Hear about the issues of health equity and healthcare on Cape Cod and the islands with a spotlight on the voices of Wampanoag community members, their cultural traditions, and what it means to be healthy. Enjoy and participate in the music and dance with the Wampanoag Nation singers and dancers during their lively and educational performance and bring a potluck dish to share with everyone at the event. From 1 to 2.30, it's the panel discussion with Wampanoag community members. From 2.30 to 4, the potluck. And from 4 to 5, Wampanoag Nation singers and dancers. 
and you can find out more about this at wellfleetpreservationhall.org. This afternoon at 4 p.m., Falmouth Art Center's Book Club presents a talk by Jonathan Wilson, the author of the biography Marc Chagall. The talk is on Zoom and is free and open to all. To request the Zoom link, send an email to info at falmouthart.org. The Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater is thrilled to announce the return of Metropolitan Opera Live in HD broadcasts. The series continues on November 18th with X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, and then continues with Foncia in El Amazonas, that is December 9th, Nabucho on January 6th, Carmen on January 27th, La Forza del Destino on March 9th, Romeo Juliette on March 23rd, La Rondine on April 20th, and Madama Butterfly on May 11th. You don't need to remember all that. Just go to what.org. And on November 11th, it's the return of the Mosquito Story Slam, modeled on the Moth Radio Hour at the Provincetown Theater. It's recommended that you buy tickets in advance as they do sell out. So go to mosquitostory.com for more information and to get tickets. All right, well, I am delighted um, to have on Arts Week for the first time ever, Jay Cosmos Lee. He's the, symph the Cape Symphony's concert master. He's a founding member of A Far Cry, the Grammy-nominated self-conducted orchestra based in Boston. He's performed in concert halls throughout Europe, the United States, Canada, and Asia, and music festivals worldwide. And he's currently, on top of all of that, managing artistic principal of Cape Symphony here on Cape Cod. Welcome to Arts Week, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Jeanette. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you on, and you've got so many wonderful stories to tell. <laughs> I'm not sure where to start, but let's start just because it's this weekend talking about Mozart. Um, yes. And I'm wondering a couple of things, and I'm just going to throw them out there and let you talk. Um, I'm wondering why you chose to do Mozart now, but also, you know, why it is that he is considered by many people in, in the Western world, the greatest composer or one of the greatest composers in history. And I'm wondering what draws you to his music. And that's a, probably a three hour discussion right there, but let's it's jump in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, in my opinion, I, I feel like Mozart is so beloved because um, in all of his music, I mean, not only was he a child prodigy, so there's there's that part of it that he started composing such an, at an early age, and st you know, starting at four or five, and some of those works that he composed early on, like in his teens, some of them are much a lot, a lot of them are mature works that he wrote for the violin and the piano. I mean, some symphonies that I mean, he he wrote all kinds of music, and it was it wasn't just writing for the piano, like for, for like, you know, in an instance, like someone like Paganini would have been, who was also a prodigy and someone who was prolific in his, in his writing, but he only wrote for violin, you know, in a, in a, in a certain amount of time. I mean, he would, he would later write for other instruments, but Mozart just had that prowess that some of these other composers didn't from an early age. And so, and a lot of times when you hear Mozart's music, people always go back to it sounding like an opera. 
and because he loved opera and he was a, he was a he was an opera composer like how Tchaikovsky was a ballet composer and and Tchaikovsky also like you know so many people admired Mozart and for his um ability to weave um layers of music with such artistry in terms of counterpoint in terms of harmony um he was really inventive without breaking too much of of the form i mean beethoven later would come and he would smash everything with a hammer literally i mean figuratively you know in in the writing but mozart followed a little bit more of the order that that bach and handel and uh, and haydn sort of brought the form to that you know to that stage at that at that point in time but he would weave little things in you know and you you hear it in the music um very subtly without without losing his elegance without losing his drama and without losing his beauty <clears throat> um so yeah i mean one of the one of the cool things that that i i've been finding out lately before we started this mozart um, putting together this Mozart concert was that, you know, finding out that Mozart wrote about 200 dances in his lifetime, which people don't know about. Yeah. And he loved to dance. I mean, his, he, the, you know, there, there are moments and, um, and scenes in Milos Forman's Amadeus, the movie, you know, so much of it is actually historically based, even though it's, it's fic you know, fictional and it's actually based on the, um, you know, in the the play Amadeus, um, um, by I, I believe it was uh, who was it Peter Sellers? I can't remember. I can't remember who the uh, who, who the uh, playwright was. Not Peter Sellers. Who's some someone else? I can't remember right now. Um, but there are moments where he's actually at at balls and dancing. He looks so happy, and those are actually real. <laughs> they're they're real. Uh, um, what do you call them? They're there are accounts that they that it's not something that they forged. These are you know these are balls that he actually attended. He I mean to a point where his wife Costanza said that if Mozart hadn't been a composer, he would have been a dancer. Um. So yeah, he wrote he wrote so many minuets starting from an early age, like starting in his teens, and he wrote a lot of German dances later later on Alamans that for the court for the, so so these so the orchestras are playing in these ballrooms. So he was very, very utilitarian composer as well. He was kind of like the, you know, in some ways he was the Quincy Jones of his day, you know, but able also able to make, also able to write serious music because he was an opera composer and a, and a you know, and a symphonist and, and a, you know, and a prolific pianist. I mean, like the, the, the whole pianist part of it later on as, as he became a serious composer, it didn't really matter, but, you know, he could go in solo with any orchestra he wanted if he you know if that was his if that was his desire so i mean there's he has, he has so many facets of being a musician and the thing that i really find fascinating is that of all of them he still just loved to dance and it's just you know like of all the complexities and and the the god-given gift that he had like the thing the thing that drove him the most is is a really really simple factor you know, um, the Mozart concert came about. It was I. I wish I could say it was my idea. Um, <laughs> our 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 previous music director um, left after the last season, and the season was already already concocted. And this was earmarked as as 
couldn't be an all Mozart concert, but um, it was to be a real production. And and since um, I wanted, since there was an opportunity for for me to do this as an unconducted uh, concert pair of concerts, I actually you know rechose the repertoire and still made it an all Mozart concert using the using the musicians were already um, contracted for for this week. So I chose. I I thought of. I, you know, I, I thought of like, what could I do with the instrumentation of people that I have? And so I sort of concocted uh, like a, a historical week in Mozart's life when he would have been in Prague in 1791, right before, like in September of 1791, um, while he was uh, premiering his last opera, La Clemenza di Tito. Um, but he was beloved in Prague. And he had, you know, he wrote the Prague Symphony while he was in Prague, not not on this visit, but in in his prior visit. And Prague being a being a sort of you know, like a satellite city of of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that at that point, where it, it wasn't as glitzy as Vienna, nor Paris, but the people people there, I mean, Bohemians, you know, they're as they're known, they were they're very artistic inclined and you know they're they're life-loving people um maybe maybe just not not quite as snooty but you know <laughs> down, to, down to earth people who whom loved Mozart's music and you know he he also uh, premiered the the opera Don Giovanni there and so there are a lot of activities that he, that Mozart did and he loved going to Prague and so I I thought of okay if Mozart were to, were to have played one concert with an orchestra when he arrived in Prague, you know, for the third time in his life, what would he have played? So um, I chose I chose the set of repertoire that would that would have been available for him, or maybe in his fingers, and and thought, you know, if Mozart would have come back to Prague, would he have played a symphony? Like, yes, definitely. You know, they would have been like, we love that symphony, we want to hear you play it. You know, like lead the orchestra. And so what he would he would start out with, like, you know, I just composed this beautiful opera called The Magic Flute. So I want to I want to, you know, give a little prelude with the overture and then. Then, you know, let me include some German dances in there that I just, that I just wrote, you know, like a few months ago or, or last year. And then and I want to be my own. I want to be the soloist in my own favorite concerto. Then I'll present them with with the, you know, popular favorite, the Prague symphony and so you know there are a lot of like historical fictitious historical movies that right. we see i mean pretty much every historical movie is a fictitious one that we create sure. but so i wanted to kind of create my my like week of prague mozart and mozart's you know last year and so this was this is sort of my uh my imagining of that week in september in uh in prague so, and it sounds exciting. So you're currently um, managing artistic principle and um, not all of my audience are musicians or as musically astute as as perhaps many of the people you're used to talking to. Yeah. So I'd love it if you'd explain, first of all, what it is to be a concert master um, and then what it is to step into this, this role um, that you've been doing lately. Yeah, and maybe and maybe even if you would add a little bit about your own background and how you came to be here, that would be fantastic. Oh, sure. 
Yeah. Um, the role of a concertmaster in an orchestra is typically what people see is the is the first musician that comes on stage after the orchestra is on stage and waiting so because the uh, concertmaster is kind of the 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 cure of the of the a so we actually tune the orchestra right and but it's not just ceremonious i mean it's not something that you see like at a you know at a catholic church and it's, you know it's <laughs> it's like the way it's done always and and but part of it part of it remains because because it has the it, it is kind of more morphed into what it is now but the leaders of orchestras um you know starting going back to Archangelo Corelli who was who was a, his own composer and had his own band you know they led their orchestras as these violin virtuosos so they were always concertmasters you know so they would I mean it it started out orchestra started out as a vehicle for these musicians to to display and and play their own music a lot of times back in the, back in the yonder days of the you know of the of the 17th and 18th centuries um but then as the role started started becoming more utilitarian utilitarian it, you know it's when the composers started started writing more as pianists and they wanted to lead like Handel wanted, you know wrote a lot of operas and he he had to lead his operas so he couldn't actually be the first violinist in his opera so he would actually be there playing the harpsichord so you needed someone to help help the composer lead the orchestra. So naturally, they had there had to be a leader. So there was a role that was designated. And what it you know a hundred years later, when the Gewandhaus Orchestra in, in Leipzig finally came to be be a sort of a symphonic form of an orchestra that it has you know is sort of sort of um, you know what it would become now. Um, you had Ferdinand David, who was who was then the concertmaster of the orchestra, who was also a very accomplished, um, not only a accomplished violinist, but also accomplished um, conduct uh, a conductor and a later conductor, but also also a composer. You know, friend of Mendelssohn, and Mendelssohn became the very first conductor of of the Gewandhaus Orchestra. And the story goes that mendelssohn as as his friend and someone who comes comes on to on, on the podium to lead the orchestra shook ferdinand davis hand which meant he was re, he, ferdinand davis was relinquishing his power of leading the orchestra to the conductor and so that tradition that tradition of of the uh, handshake between the conductor and the concertmaster starts at that point i don't i mean who knows is that also a historical account you know we can probably make a fictitious account if there was ever a right. movie about orchestras right but that's that that's how the story goes of the concert master who were who back you know until up to that point was always the leader of the orchestra whether or not there was a conductor or not but once there was a conductor the composer who wanted to conduct their own music became sort of the the replacement of actually someone just leading the music which used to be the conductors who would be, you know, not only conducting their own music, but, you know, Mendelssohn was also the first one to actually conduct other people's music and, you know, publicly in, in, in such sense. So the arc of the, the orchestral tradition kind of, you know, really kind of, you know, starts there in terms of like all the, 
all sort of the the you know the the this what can you say the the format of the concert master coming out and tuning the orchestra all those kind of you know started started coming out from that era um but in reality you know a concert master is the leader of the strings um sort of sort of a diplomat between the between the uh, strings and the winds and the timpani and a lot of times if the conductor you know might might be leading the musical gestures. The actual cue might happen with the bow of the of the of the concertmaster. And a lot of a lot of times, the, all the all the instrumentalists who are on stage aren't necessarily looking at the conductor for the cue, but it's it's kind of a a two sight thing. So you you may be watching the conductor for the for the downbeat of the with the baton, but you also have an eye on the eye on the uh, the bow of the conductor. I mean of the of the concert master because doesn't matter if the conductor puts the downbeat if the concert master doesn't doesn't play the note usually the orchestra wants to be it has to be with the concert master in order for it to be together so a de facto i was i would say i i like to call it like you know in these in these uh, in the navy they have they have a captain and they have an executive officer an exo mm -hmm. and, you know even though even though the captain may give you know, give the orders, things don't actually get executed until the XO, you know, pushes the buttons. So I, a lot of times, a lot of times I refer the concert master as the executive officer. Um, second part of your, of your question, um, coming to Boston, I mean, it's already been all, almost 20 years. Um, the 10 years leading up to that, I was, I was fascinated and was passionate about playing string quartets. And so I spent many years during, you know, my post-college years and during college trying to trying to find myself a, a, a professional quartet and which which I had three. And um quartets are not unlike bands where you know it has to you need you need a lot of factors to be met and to work out, have a little bit of luck in order for to have staying staying power. And you know, not all bands, you know, not all bands are the Beatles, not all bands are the Rolling Stones and quartets the same way. There, there are so many of them and so many great ones now. You know, back up back a hundred years ago, it was it was just specializing and not a lot of people were dedicating their whole lives playing chamber music as they were, but by the time I was a student, I was completely enamored with the the Beethoven quartets, the Haydn quartets, all the quartets, like the Bartoks. I mean, I those that was my that was my first love, more so than the concertos. And it, I mean, of course, I played concertos growing up, and you know, played in youth orchestras, so got to play a lot of you know the Rizvi Korsakovs and the Tchaikovskys, and you know, they're great pieces that you learn as a youngster. But once I got the quartet bug and especially like I think I think it was the it was the recordings of the Cleveland Quartet when they were just as they were releasing releasing their Beethoven cycle um was their second Beethoven uh second Beethoven cycle they released with um with the violinist Bill Prussell when uh Bill Prussell replaced Don Wallerstein in the Cleveland Quartet those recordings were the ones that really grabbed me and I just could not think of anything else. 
So like I wanted I wanted to have a quartet of my own. And for unforeseen reasons and and you know and artistic differences into workouts, speaking of persuasion, you know, I I didn't quite master the art of persuasion. So I fought a lot with my colleagues. And you know, when you when you fight a lot, it's like any other relationship, you know, you wanna you wanna be able to find find bridges to hold things together and to be able to um you know build a build a harmonious relationship for for sustainability and i just didn't i just didn't know i thought i thought we could actually duke out things and fight over musical ideas and still be okay at the end of the night you know but when you have three other people who are who are married to such projects it makes it makes it difficult so i had to learn i had to learn things the hard way mm-hmm. and so by the time i came to boston and and had three failed quartets. <laughs> I was I was like, you know, maybe it's time for me to you try. You learned to a thing or two. And then I thought, you know, and, and, and quite honestly, like the first first year when I came to Boston was because there was also a, a another another prospect quartet that I was about to join, and then that fell apart in the, within the first year, and I was stuck in Boston because I'd already enrolled in the New England Conservatory, and you know, and had to go to school. And so I thought I'd, I'd buy myself some time and maybe try the orchestral route and started taking some auditions. And and, and I, I thought are. maybe I wouldn't stay. There. And I thought I wasn't going to stay in the area that long. But then a lot of the people that I knew from other chamber music summer festivals that I had attended and people I had met from the, from the chamber music scene who were in other quartets that happened to all be in Boston because they also had quartets that broke up. And so when all those like-minded people came together at, at that point in time, which a lot of them were, were students at NEC and, and other places in Boston, mm-hmm. thought, you know, why don't we expand the quartet and, and do an unconducted reading session like a chamber orchestra mm-hmm. and without a conductor. And when that happened and there was some magic right from the get-go and that was the start of a far cry. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. I'm going to have to stop you there because we are running out of time. I do want people to check out your podcast, which is called (laughs) Beethoven Bad Boy. Um, It's great great fun to talk about all these bad boys of music, but where can they find that? Um, It's on all the platforms. Okay, wherever you get your podcasts, look for Beethoven Bad Boy. And um, Mozart is this weekend. Go to capesymphony.org to get times and tickets. And I thank you so much for being my guest on Arts Week this week. Thank you, Jeanette. This this is mighty fun, but I hope I, I hope there's enough material for you to, for you to put was, on the podcast. It was fabulous. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening in. I'm Jeanette de Beauvoir. This has been Arts Week on WOMR. Pour te te demander Allô, quelque chose quoi yeah. mm. Quelque chose quoi